This is a recording of Ancient Affinities within the LDS Book of Enoch, Part 1, by Jeffrey M. Bradshaw and David J. Larson, originally published in Interpreter, a Journal of Mormon Scripture, Volume 4, 2013, pages 1 through 27, read by Hale Swift. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged, the journal and its website are credited, and is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles and resources on Mormon scripture can be found at mormoninterpreter.com. Abstract. In this article we will examine affinities between ancient extra-canonical sources and a collection of modern revelations that Joseph Smith termed extracts from the prophecy of Enoch. We built on the work of previous scholars, revisiting their findings with the benefit of subsequent scholarship. Following a perspective on the LDS canon and an introduction to the LDS Enoch revelations, we will focus on relevant passages in Pseudepigrapha and LDS scripture within three episodes in the Mormon Enoch narrative. Enoch's Prophetic Commission, Enoch's Encounters with the Giborim, and the Weeping and Exaltation of Enoch and His People. There are few other branches of Christianity that revere Holy Scripture as do the Latter-day Saints. Paradoxically, no other Christian faith has felt such liberty, or rather such necessity, to add to and even revise it continually. This is because Latter-day Saints are not fundamentally a people of the book, but instead a people of continuing revelation. In other words, not only do they subscribe to the idea of an enlarged canon through official acceptance of three additional books of scripture besides the Bible, but they also accept the concept of an open and growing canon, regarding efforts to harden on the all-sufficiency or only sufficiency of any part of scripture as tantamount to praising the cup and rejecting the fountain, Thus members of the Church hold that sacred texts are not only susceptible to a plainer translation, D&C 128.18, but also open to the possibility of significant expansion and elaboration through the living spirit of prophecy. To Latter-day Saints, a closed and immutable canon is inconsistent with the idea of God's continuing revelation, as expressed in our Ninth Article of Faith. We believe in all that God has revealed, all that He does now reveal, and we believe that he will yet reveal many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God. In a paper written in 1985, George Nicholsberg explored a similar stance in primitive Christianity. This is the idea that, quote, the early Christians and some Jews before them based their exclusivistic stance on the claim that they had received divine revelation, unquote. Prominent among the sectarian Jews who accepted this claim were those who accepted purported revelations found within the collection of books we now call First Enoch, as well as the people of Qumran who preserved the Dead Sea Scrolls. Likewise, Nicholsburg asserted that early Jewish Christians, while more open to Gentile outsiders, appear, quote, to have adopted the sectarian Jewish approach that asserted the validity of its position by claiming divine revelation. Salvation was tied exclusively to the person and activity of Jesus of Nazareth, unquote. Nicholsburg's description of the twofold irony of the Christian position will not be lost on those who realize its resemblance to the relationship between Mormonism and mainstream Christianity. Quote, a young upstart group was asserting that it was more authentic than its parent group, and this attitude of superiority and exclusivism was derived, in part, from ideas and attitudes already present in the parent body. Unquote. 
Of course, in saying this, it must be recognized that Latter-day Saints share a core of essential, biblically-based beliefs in common with other Christians. Paramount among these beliefs is that salvation comes only in and through the grace of God and the name of Christ. We also agree with Nicholsburg's commendable charge to all Christian scholars to quote, build wisely, responsibly, and with love both for those within the immediate community of faith and for those within the broader community, unquote. However, it must be recognized that the bold claim of continuing revelation is not a mere footnote to LDS teachings, but the very heart of the faith. Mormons realize that denying this claim would be to use the apt metaphor of Nicholsburg more than, quote, simply pulling a little theological splinter that has been the source of great irritation, unquote, in the interest of promoting a, quote, new, wiser, and more loving and ecumenical age, unquote, but rather tantamount to performing, quote, radical surgery on a vital organ of the faith. Unquote. In submitting to such surgery, the patient would not be risking his life, but rather ending it. That the enthusiastic stance of welcome in the LDS faith for additional discoveries of the Word of God includes parts of the Apocrypha, and also perhaps certain more problematic pseudepigraphal writings of complex and uncertain provenance, is affirmed in a revelation that Joseph Smith received in 1833. Verily, thus saith the Lord unto you concerning the Apocrypha, there are many things contained therein that are true, and it is mostly translated correctly. There are many things contained therein that are not true, which are interpolations by the hands of men. Therefore, whoso readeth it, let him understand, for the Spirit manifesteth truth, and whoso is enlightened by the Spirit shall obtain benefit therefrom. Although Mormons do not count any of the pseudepigraphal works of Enoch among the books of their canon, the prophetic word that Whoso is enlightened by the Spirit shall obtain benefit from the Apocrypha leads us to consider seriously what light extra-canonical writings can shed on our scripture, doctrine, and teachings, and vice versa. In such matters, seership and scholarship can go comfortably hand in hand. As Terrell S. Givens astutely observed, our contemporary condescension in this regard was clearly foreign to a prophet who showed the world he could translate gold plates written in Reformed Egyptian, then, a few years later, hired a Jewish schoolmaster to teach him Hebrew. Givens notes that this paradoxical two-pronged approach to the search for religious truth is characteristic of Mormonism. It is, quote, a group embrace of a rhetoric of absolute self-assurance about spiritual truths, unquote, revealed directly from God, Quote, coexisting with the conception of education as the endless and eternal acquisition of the knowledge that leads to godhood, unquote. The seriousness with which Joseph Smith took both aspects of this two-pronged approach is to be fathomed from its timing and growing direction in the context of his own prophetic career. After the youthful leader had established his credentials as prophet and translator, after he had personally manifested his power to reveal the fullness of saving truth directly from heaven, and, after he claimed receipt of authority to perform all saving ordinances in the new church, at that moment when he had powerfully demonstrated to his followers the irrelevance of priestly training, clerical degrees, and scholarly credentials, he opened a school, where he, along with his followers, could acquire a classroom education. In a revelation given at the subsequent dedication of the First Mormon Temple, the charge to the saints to embrace a two-pronged vision of learning was made explicit, quote, Seek ye out of the best books words of wisdom, seek learning, even by study and also by faith, unquote. Carrying that vision of learning forward to our day, 
an enthusiastic cadre of Latter-day Saint scholars, has essayed to discover and understand affinities between LDS expansions of the biblical narratives and ancient sources from outside the Bible. With these efforts in mind, Truman G. Madsen wisely provided both caution and encouragement to such scholars. Surface resemblance may conceal profound difference. It requires competence, much goodwill, and bold caution properly to distinguish what is remotely parallel, what is like, what is very like, and what is identical. It is harder still to trace these threads to original influences and beginnings, but on the whole, the Mormon expects to find, not just in the Judeo-Christian background, but in all religious traditions, elements of commonality which, if they do not outweigh elements of contrast, do reflect that all-inclusive diffusion of primal religious concern and contact with God. The light, quote, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world, unquote. If the outcome of hard archaeological, historical, and comparative discoveries in the past century is an embarrassment to exclusivistic reading, uh, readings of religion, that to the Mormon is a kind of confirmation and vindication. His faith assures him not only that Jesus anticipated his great predecessors, who were really successors, but that hardly a teaching or a practice is utterly distinct or peculiar or original in his earthly ministry. Jesus was not a plagiarist, unless that is the proper name for one who repeats himself. He was the original author. The gospel of Jesus Christ came with Christ in the meridian of time only because the gospel of Jesus Christ came from Christ in prior dispensations. He did not teach merely a new twist on a syncretic Mediterranean tradition. His earthly ministry enacted what had been planned and anticipated, quote, from before the foundations of the world, unquote, and from Adam down. In this article, we will examine affinities between ancient extra-canonical sources and a collection of modern revelations that Joseph Smith termed, quote, extracts from the prophecy of Enoch, unquote. This article builds on the work of scholars intrigued by LDS accounts of Enoch, in particular the pioneering insights of Hugh W. Nibley. Regrettably, after he completed his initial studies of the relationship between ancient documents and Joseph Smith's Enoch revelations in 1978, Nibley turned his attention to other subjects and never again took up a sustained study of Enoch. Now, more than 30 years later, it is time to revisit his findings with the benefit of subsequent scholarship. Following an introduction to the LDS Enoch revelations, we will focus on the relevant passages in Pseudepigrapha and LDS scripture within three episodes in the Mormon Enoch narrative. Enoch's Prophetic Commission, Enoch's Encounters with the Giborim, The Weeping and Exaltation of Enoch and His People, Introduction to the LDS Enoch Revelations. Both in the expansive nature of its content and the eloquence of its expression, Terrell and Fiona Givens consider the LDS account of Enoch as perhaps the, quote, most remarkable religious document published in the 19th century, unquote. It was produced early in Joseph Smith's ministry, in fact, in the same year as the publication of the Book of Mormon, as part of a divine commission to retranslate the Bible. Writing the account of Enoch occupied a part of the prophet's attention for a month from 30th November to 31st December 1830. Later, the first eight chapters of the Joseph Smith translation of Genesis, which included two chapters of Enoch, were subsequently canonized as the Book of Moses. Joseph Smith's Book of Enoch provides 18 times as many column inches about Enoch than we have in the few verses on him in the Bible. Those scriptures not only contain greater quantity than the Bible, but also contain abundant new material 
about Enoch on which the Bible is silent. This material was not derived from deep study of the scriptures or from exposure to the extra-canonical Enoch literature, nor was it absorbed from Masonic or Hermetical influences. Rather, according to the eminent Yale professor and Jewish literary scholar Harold Bloom, Joseph Smith's ability to produce writings on Enoch so, quote, strikingly akin to ancient suggestions, unquote, stemmed from his, quote, charismatic accuracy, his sure sense of relevance that governed biblical and Mormon parallels, unquote. Having studied the life and revelations of the prophet, Bloom concludes, quote, I hardly think that written sources were necessary, unquote while expressing, quote, no judgment one way or the other upon the authenticity, unquote, of LDS scripture, he found, quote, enormous validity, unquote, in these writings, and could, quote, only attribute to the prophet's genius or demon, unquote, his ability to, quote, recapture crucial elements in the archaic Jewish religion that had ceased to be available either to normative Judaism or to Christianity, and that survived only in esoteric traditions unlikely to have touched Joseph Smith directly, unquote. Before proceeding further with our examination of extra-canonical affinities with the Enoch chapters in the Book of Moses, some cautionary words relating to the prophet's translation process are in order. Though some revelatory passages in the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible seem to have remarkable congruencies with ancient texts, we think it is fruitless to rely on JST Genesis as a means for uncovering an Enoch urtext. Mormons understand that the primary intent of modern revelation is for divine guidance to latter-day readers, not to provide pre precise matches to texts from ancient times. Because this is so, in fact we would expect to find deliberate deviations from the content and wording of ancient manuscripts in Joseph Smith's translations in the interests of clarity and relevance to modern readers. As one LDS apostle expressed it, quote, The Holy Spirit does not quote the scriptures, but gives scripture. Unquote. If we keep this perspective in mind, we will be less surprised with the appearance of New Testament terms such as Jesus Christ in Joseph Smith's revelations when the title, The Son of Man, would be more in line with ancient Enoch texts. The LDS accounts of Enoch combine both ancient elements and the results of subsequent prophetic shaping to enhance intelligibility and relevance for our day. This should not be a foreign concept to readers of the Book of Mormon, familiar with the history of how its editors wove separate, overlapping records from earlier times into the finished scriptural narrative. Indeed, the Book of Mormon prophet Nephi explicitly admitted such prophetic shaping when he wrote, quote, I did liken all scriptures unto us, that it might be for our profit and learning, unquote. As evidence for this perspective, we note Philip Barlow's conclusions that during the process of Bible translation, Joseph Smith made several types of changes. These changes range from, quote, long revealed editions that have little or no biblical parallel, such as the visions of Moses and Enoch and the, and the passage on Melchizedek, to common sense changes and interpretive additions to grammatical improvements, technical clarifications, and modernization of terms, unquote the latter the most common type of change. Of course, even in the case of passages that seem to be explicitly revelatory, it remained to the prophet to exercise considerable personal effort in rendering these experiences into words. As Kathleen Flake puts it, Joseph Smith did not see himself as God's stenographer. Rather, he was an interpreting reader and God the confirming authority. 
Though Joseph Smith was careful in his efforts to render a faithful translation of the Bible, he was no naive advocate of the inerrancy or finality of scriptural language. His criterion for the acceptability of a given translation was pragmatic rather than absolute. For example, after quoting a verse from Malachi in a letter to the saints, he admitted that he, quote, might have rendered a plainer translation, unquote. However, he said that it was satisfactory in this case because the words were, quote, sufficiently plain to suit the purpose as it stands, unquote. This pragmatic approach is also evident both in the scriptural passages cited to him by heavenly messengers and in his preaching and translations. In these, the wording of the Bible verses was often varied to suit the occasion. For this reason, we should not presume that the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible is currently in any sort of final form. If indeed such perfection in expression could ever be attained within the confines of what Joseph Smith called our quote, little narrow prison, almost as it were total darkness of paper, pen, and ink, and a crooked, broken, scattered, and imperfect language. Unquote. As Robert J. Matthews, a pioneer of modern scholarship on the JST, aptly put it, quote, any part of the translation might have been further touched upon and improved by additional revelation and emendation by the prophet. Unquote. There is an additional reason we should not think of the JST as transmitted to us in its final form. Our study of the translations, teachings, and revelations of Joseph Smith has convinced us that he sometimes knew much more about certain sacred matters than he taught publicly. For example, in some cases we know that the prophet deliberately delayed the publication of early temple-related revelations connected with his work on the JST until several years after he initially received them. Even after Joseph Smith was well along in the Bible translation process, he seems to have believed that God did not intend for him to publish the JST. Writing to W. W. Phelps in 1832, he said, quote, I would inform you that the Bible translation will not go from under my hand during my natural life for correction, revision, or printing, and the will of the Lord be done, unquote. Although in later years Joseph Smith reversed his position and apparently made serious efforts to prepare the manuscript of the JST for publication, his own statement makes it clear that initially he did not feel authorized to share publicly all that he had produced and learned during the translation process. Indeed, a prohibition against indiscriminate sharing of some of the most sacred revelations, which parallels similar cautions found in Pseudepigrapha, is made explicit in the Book of Moses, when it says of sacred portions of the account, quote, show them not unto any except them that believe, unquote. Such statements are consistent with the remembrance of a statement by Joseph Smith that he intended to go back and rework some portions of the Bible translation to add in truths he was previously, quote, restrained from giving in plainness and fullness, unquote. Taken together, these reasons suggest that in our exploration of ancient affinities with modern revelation, we should be wary of claims that the JST, or the Book of Enoch in particular, constitutes restoration of the original text of the Bible, or of any extra-canonical text. With this limitation in mind, any resemblance between the JST and the ancient texts become all the more significant. We will begin our study with an examination of the prophetic commission of Enoch. Enoch's Prophetic Commission. Joseph Smith's account of Enoch's prophetic commission begins as follows. And it came to pass that Enoch journeyed in the land among the people, and as he journeyed, the Spirit of God descended out of heaven and abode upon him. And he heard a voice from heaven, saying, Enoch, my son, 
prophesy unto this people. Curiously, the closest biblical parallel to the wording of these opening verses is not to be found in the call of any Old Testament prophet, but rather in John the Evangelist's description of events following Jesus' baptism, where, like Enoch, he saw the Spirit descending from heaven, and that it abode on him. Two additional parallels with Jesus' baptism follow. First, in the specific mention of a voice from heaven, then in the proclamation of divine sonship by the Father. The connection between Enoch's divine encounter and the baptism of Jesus becomes intelligible when one regards the latter event, as do Margaret Barker and Gaetano Lettieri, as an ascent experience, consistent with the idea of baptism as a figurative death and resurrection. From this perspective, Enoch's prophetic commission may be seen as given him in the context of a heavenly ascent. In his masterful commentary on the book of Ezekiel, Walter Zimmerle distinguishes between two types of prophetic call in the Bible, the narrative type, which includes a dialogue with God or other divine interlocutor, and the throne theophany type, which introduces the prophetic commission with the vision of the heavenly throne of God. Following Norman Hobbell, Stephen Ricks distinguishes six characteristic features of the narrative call pattern. 1. The divine confrontation. 2. The introductory word. 3. The commission. 4. The objection. 5. The reassurance. 6. The sign. Drawing on Ricks' discussion in which he shows how the six features apply in the account of the commissioning of Enoch, we will highlight selected details of this pattern. Following the divine confrontation and the introductory word, Enoch's objection reads as follows, quote, And when Enoch had heard these words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord, and spake before the Lord, saying, Why is it that I have found favor in thy sight, and am but a lad? And all the people hate me, for I am slow of speech. Wherefore am I thy servant? Unquote. Obvious similarities with the call of Moses and Jeremiah present themselves in this verse. Moses responds to his call as follows, Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh, and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? Later Moses objects more specifically in saying that he was slow of speech and of a slow tongue. Jeremiah complains by saying, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a child. Enoch combines the objections of Moses and Jeremiah, adding that, quote, all the people hate me, unquote. LDS readers have often puzzled over Enoch's self-description as a lad, though he was 65 at the time. This is the only instance of the term lad in the teachings and revelations of Joseph Smith. The use of this term by Joseph Smith is of special interest considering the prominence of lad as a title for Enoch in the pseudepigraphal books of Second Enoch and Third Enoch. Gary A. Anderson of Notre Dame writes the following about the references in Second Enoch. The acclamation of Enoch as lad is curious. It certainly recalls the question that began the story. Why are you called lad by those in the heights of heaven? It is worth noting that of all the names given Enoch, the title lad is singled out as particularly apt and fitting by the heavenly host. Evidently, the seventy names were of a more general order of knowledge than the specific title lad. In any event, the reason our text supplies for this title is deceptively simple and straightforward. And because I was the youngest among them, and a lad amongst them with respect to days, months, and years, therefore they called me lad.
although Anderson reports that, quote, most scholars have not been satisfied with the simple and somewhat naive answer the text supplies, unquote, and have instead formulated a variety of more elaborate hypotheses for the name, Enoch's explanation for his title of lad in the Joseph Smith account fits the, fits the quote, simple and straightforward, unquote, explanation given in Second Enoch. God's reassurance to Enoch in light of his objection reads as follows, quote, And the Lord said unto Enoch, Go forth and do as I have commanded thee, and no man shall pierce thee. Open thy mouth, and it shall be filled, and I will give thee utterance, unquote. God's promise that no man shall pierce thee recalls a corresponding event in a Mandean account of Enoch's call. Note that his description as Little Enoch corresponds to Enoch's title of Lad. Here appears in the context of prophetic call while on the course of a journey, just as it does in Joseph Smith's Enoch account. Quote, Little Enoch, fear not. You dread the dangers of this world. I am come to you to deliver you from them. Fear not the wicked, and be not afraid that the floods will rise up on your head. For their efforts will be vain. It shall not be given them to do any harm to thee. Unquote. Later in the same Mandean account, Enoch's cosmic enemies confirm the fulfillment of the divine promise of protection for Enoch when they admit their utter failure to, to thwart the prophet and his fellows. Quote, in vain have we attempted murder and fire against them. Nothing has been able to overcome them. And now, i.e. after he and his people have ascended to heaven, they are sheltered from our blows. Unquote. When Enoch is told, quote, Open thy mouth and it shall be filled, unquote, the obvious parallel is with Moses, who is also told that the Lord would be with his mouth and teach him what to say. However, an equally good parallel is found again in the Enoch literature. In Second Enoch 39.5, Enoch avers, quote, It is not from my own lips that I am reporting to you today, but from the lips of the Lord I have been sent to you. For you hear my words out of my lips, a human being created exactly equal to yourselves, but I have heard from the fiery lips of the Lord, unquote. Joseph Smith's Enoch will manifest God's power not only through his words, but also through his actions. Quote, the mountains shall flee before you, and the rivers shall turn from their course, unquote. Later in the book of Moses, we read the fulfillment of this promise. Quote, so great was the faith of Enoch that the rivers of water were turned out of their course, unquote. Compare the striking similarity of Enoch's experience in the book of Moses to the Mandean account. Quote, the supreme life replied, Arise, take thy way to the source of the waters, turn it from its course. At this command, Tavril, the angel speaking to Enoch, indeed turned the pure water from its course. Unquote. We find no account of a river's course turned by anyone anywhere in the Bible. The only two places it appears are in the pseudepigraphal account and in its counterpart in Joseph Smith's Revelations, in both instances within the story of Enoch. Next, Enoch's eyes are washed and opened. Quote, and the Lord spake unto Enoch, and said unto him, Anoint thine eyes with clay, and wash them, and thou shalt see. And he did so. And he beheld the spirits that God had created, and he beheld also things which were not visible to the natural eye. And from thenceforth came the saying abroad in the land, a seer hath the Lord raised up unto his people. Unquote. As a sign of their prophetic calling, the lips of Isaiah and Jeremiah were touched to prepare them for their roles as divine spokesmen. 
However, in the case of both Joseph Smith's revelations and the pseudepigrapha, Enoch's eyes, quote, were opened by God, unquote, to enable, quote, the vision of the Holy One and of heaven, unquote. The words of a divinely given song recorded in Joseph Smith's Revelation, Book 2, are in remarkable agreement with First Enoch. Quote, God touched Enoch's eyes and he saw heaven. Unquote. This divine action would have had special meaning to Joseph Smith, who alluded elsewhere to instances in which God touched his own eyes before he received a heavenly vision. The description of the anointing of the eyes with clay in the book of Moses recalls the healing by Jesus of the man born blind. Craig Keener observes that, quote, by making clay of the spittle and applying it to eyes blind from birth, Jesus may be recalling the creative act of Genesis 2-7, a fitting analog to the spiritual rebirth of Enoch in Joseph Smith's revelation. Having examined ancient affinities in the prophetic commission of Enoch, we will turn our attention in part two of this article to the events of his subsequent teaching mission and to the exaltation of Enoch and his people. This has been a recording of Ancient Affinities within the LDS Book of Enoch, Part 1, by Jeffrey M. Bradshaw and David J. Larson, originally published in Interpreter, a Journal of Mormon Scripture, Volume 4, 2013, pages 1-27, through 27, read by Hale Swift. A printed version of this and many other articles and resources on Mormon Scripture can be found at mormoninterpreter.com.